Today we're going to be continuing with the subject of the new creation, and this is part 12 of Seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. And my goal today is to see how the images of Eden in the Bible all hang together in a beautiful way and bring us so much hope. So I'm just going to give you a quick recap of the last three messages. So we talked about a a new thing that came in with um, Abraham and Sarah and the rest of the patriarchs and matriarchs, which was God saying, I am with you. And we saw this with, with Jacob, with, with Joseph and, and we saw God just being with them and how this was such an amazing transformative thing for them. And it's a new way that he's revealing that he relates to humanity. And then we saw the word chesed, which is a Hebrew word meaning the, a, a kind of love that will never let you go. It's a story, uh, we saw stories of how God relates to humans in this way that is utterly faithful, loyal to the very end. A God who is infinitely powerful and yet has you completely secure in his hands. And when you understand it, there's no word that's more beautiful than this. And we saw how Jesus came and he brought this to us. He brought this kind of love to us. Then last time we looked at the new creation, the big story of the Bible. And I believe it is the biggest grand narrative. It's like the best way of encapsulating everything about the gospel is in this big story. And today I would like to talk about Garden of Eden imagery throughout the Bible. And I'd then like to talk about a rerun of the Garden of Eden. And then I'd like to end up by talking about living as part of the new creation. And um, I'm going to make a confession. When I first, last week, when I was going to begin this series, I thought I would get it all, get it all in a week. And it became very quickly evident as I did more and more research and discovered more and more amazing things that it wouldn't fit into a week and I would have to be two weeks. And this week, as I've been wrestling with it, and I've been just doing new work and just so excited and I'm thinking, well, I can't leave that out and I can't leave that out. It's going to it's going to be three weeks. I hope I'll finish it in three weeks, but we'll see. But the that's just because there's so much stuff here. It is so good. It is so rich. So this is part two. And I'm not going to try and get everything in this week. We're going to look at a particular facet, which is the story of Eden. And uh, so... Uh, places of God's special revelation, uh, special presence rather, in the Bible, places where God's particularly present, are often marked by descriptions of precious stones. This is very interesting to see, and we can see this first in the Garden of Eden. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Psion. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of the land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. And this is just one of the descriptions that we have. But you can see this description of 
precious stones that are there. And actually, Onyx, um, Anne has a, um, a, a, an Onyx. So who was it that you got this from? Your, your grand, your grandmother. So this is, this, um, stone here. Um, actually, let me just put it up in big for you to see. There we go. So this stone is, um, beautiful stone and it's Onyx. Now, Onyx can look all kind of different colors, but it's, it's basically stone that's got like streaks of different colors in it and just quite amazing. So, that's um that's uh what onyx is and it's it's a precious it's a uh, is a precious stone so <clears throat> it's also interesting that in the wherever we see we look in the bible at these places where god is present we get this kind of imagery and in ezekiel 28 there's a reference to eden and in verse 13 it says eden the garden of the lord and then describing it, it goes on, it says Sardis, Topaz and Diamond, Beryl, Onyx and Jasper, Sapphire, Emerald and Carbuncle. And these are the lists of the, the precious things. So now what's really interesting is when you go through and you just see where are the mentions of precious stones in the Bible? Well, quite often they're references to Eden. There's one other references I'm going to come on to a minute in a minute, but there's also new creation references. So in Genesis 21, we read, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God is radiant like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. Jasper, sapphire, agate, emerald, onyx, and it goes on. And so these are, this is, this is really describing it as a new Eden. It's a place where we can meet with God. And in case you're not convinced this is the new Eden, let me show you another verse here in the next chapter. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. So this picture of the new creation in actuality is has full of Eden imagery. Now, um, I just want to say that... Um, we don't know how much of this is literal, how much of this is symbolic. We will have to wait till we get there before we know exactly what it's like. I think the important thing here is that it's like a, re, a restarting of Eden, but much, much better. So we have this imagery. Um, <clears throat> so this is, uh, so what I've done then is that's my first point. I've very, very quickly given you Garden of Eden imagery throughout the Bible. Now I want to talk about a rerun of Eden, a rerun of Eden, and we're going to end by living as a part of the new creation. So let's think about then the last time when I spoke last week, we talked about how the flood was a new beginning and how Noah followed a very similar path to Adam. So I, I drew you a little chart here with Adam and Eve on the left there and Noah on the right. And we saw that um, Adam and Eve had a garden, Noah had a vineyard, uh, Adam and Eve ate of the tree, 
uh, Noah ate. He wasn't forbidden for eating the grapes, but he got blind drunk. So it was that was what led him into it. So there was sin involved. And then we have an issue of nakedness with both Adam and Eve and with Noah. And then we have shame with both of them. Adam and Eve are ashamed. Noah is ashamed. Adam tries to blame Eve and God. And Noah tried to blame Ham and Canaan. So we have really a very clear like rerunning of Eden there without a good result. Um, but here's the amazing thing. Here's the amazing thing. There's, there, there's more than one place where we get reruns. And one of the things that we see in, if we look through the, the, the big line of scripture, and, and we're going to come to this um, in, in a few weeks and in more detail, but the nation of Israel, calling the nation of Israel, was a little bit like a new Adam and Eve. They were like, a, and the, although there is a whole people of God, it was like a new start for the world. And what happens is, in this, we get um, an incident that happens, and it's the golden calf. So let me read it through, and then we'll talk about what's happening here. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down, from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold and bring them to me. And so he gets into organizing mode, gets lots of gold. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So, the, of course, Moses does appear in the end and he's not good. This is the point where he actually smashes the tablets of stone. Like he can't believe what is happening here. And we see um, Moses uh, comes and says to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you've brought such a great sin upon them? Like you're responsible here. And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, they're set on evil, like complete blame shifting, blames these people um, for what he did. But then, even more laughably, oh, let's just read that. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. So I said to them, let any of you who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. <laughs> he's blaming the fire now, like he's denying it. He actually made it. Earlier on, it says, you know, he engraved it. But, oh, you know, I just threw the gold in the fire and look what came out. And um, so you see the same kind of blame shifting, the same kind of situation. And although it doesn't say it in our passage here, the place where it happened was called the camp. So a place called the camp, which was supposed to be a place of God's presence. And so the temptation comes, is he going to serve God or is he going to serve a false God? They choose the false God. And then there's the blame shifting. There's no nakedness here that I can discern, but everything else there is in place. And so if we want to put a, um, a parallel up here, we can say, um, uh, we can say there's a garden, 
for Adam and Eve. There's a camp in the wilderness that they broke the command. Adam and Eve did. Aaron and the nation worshipped the golden calf. There was shame on both sides and an attempt to blame. But here is the amazing thing. Here is the huge difference. Instead of destroying Aaron, God does a rerun of this um, this false worship and reruns it as true worship. And he takes Aaron, he allows Aaron to lead it. Like Aaron actually leads the true worship and he takes away Aaron's shame. This is amazing. God actually like redoes this event and actually puts Aaron as the one who's pure and perfect in this. So what happens? Well, first he tells them to make a place where he can meet with them. So he instructs them that they're going to make this tabernacle. Now, what's very interesting is that the description of the tabernacle that God gives them is full of Eden symbolism. It's for many people have noticed this and there's so much that it it must be intentional. And this is because it represents God's presence in the same way as Eden did. Let me just give you an example of this. In constructing the tabernacle in Exodus 39, verse 6, it says, They made the onyx stones enclosed in settings of gold filigree and engraved like the engravings of a signet according to the names of the sons of Israel. And there were precious stones there in the design of the um the, the tabernacle and also the symbolism of the tree of life there. It's amazing. So, but then what happens is at this point, instead of the worship of the golden calf and, you know, they built a, an altar for the golden calf, you have the altar for worshiping God and we have this parallel. So the, instead of breaking the command, they worship the true God. In the Garden of Eden, they were ashamed. Here, Aaron's shame is taken away. But here's the most amazing thing. Aaron is given this incredibly beautiful robe to wear, covered in jewels. And this is what he wears. And it's like God is not, like, he's actually clothing him in beauty. And this is just, I mean, this just amazes me to think of it. That God would respond to Aaron like this. This is what Aaron did. And God's response was, you know, I'm actually going to make you the perfect representative to be able to stand in my very presence and clothe you with this beautiful garment. And so this is the new thing that God does with Israel, is he reruns this event with a golden calf. He reruns it in a new scenario that totally overturns all the stuff that was done before. And I'm just amazed <coughs> as... um as I see this, there are, we're not going to look at them, but there's possibly one or two other places where we get this kind of rerun or comparison. There's an incident with Lot where the word Eden is used and Lot ends up naked and Abraham, like a parallel thing where Abraham, uh, he is tested by God for Isaac's life and a lamb was provided instead. And there are some things about it which make it look like that could be like a reversal type image. But I'm not going to go into that. But what I really wanted to go into now is the main place where this lands. Because what's happened here in in wilderness is actually like a foretaste of what is going to happen. And um, this is 
Eden imagery, particularly in the Gospel of John, and John makes this really, really clear. So John uses the word garden several times at the end of the end of the Jesus life and during the time of his death and crucifixion. He uses the word garden, which is the same word as Eden, and he uses it very, very specifically. So the first time he uses it, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. And we know what happened in that garden. That was where he was betrayed by Judas. It was like the ultimate um, failure of human, um, ultimate betrayal that Judas did. Then what happened is we have 1941. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. And so he doesn't name this garden. He just says there was a garden because he wants us to think, oh, garden, whoa. So this is like an Eden event that's happening here. And... uh, and of course, the, 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 in the garden there's a tomb, and so the resurrection happens in this place. And also, he picks up on the point that um, that um, Mary inadvertently <laughs> makes an inadvertent choice of words. Jesus says to her, "Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking?" Supposing him to be the gardener, she replied. Well, Adam and Eve were gardeners. That was the goal, job they were given in Eden. And it's kind of, uh, I think John is picking up on this. And yeah, she, she didn't realize what she was saying, but she got it right here. And uh, in case you think this is too speculative and you think, well, if this is a garden, where's the tree? Well, actually, there's lots of references to trees. For example, 1 Peter 2.24 he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And so the, the cross itself, many times in the New Testament, described just simply as the tree. And this is the tree in the garden. And so we have this Eden imagery, which is amazing because here is a rerun of Eden where Jesus actually, by being raised from the dead, becomes the first of the new creation. So um, so <clears throat> let's look at my outline. We've looked at Garden of Eden imagery throughout the Bible. We've talked about the rerun of Eden. And now I'm going to end by talking about living as part of the new creation, living as part of the new creation. So the way we enter the new creation is very clearly put in many places in the New Testament, very clearly laid out. And I, what I want to do is just to, to pick on one of them, which is Romans 6, which I'll describe to you in a, in a read through in a minute. But before we do that, let me just give you kind of an outline for, for how it works. Jesus became a member of the old creation by birth. So he actually, like the old creation is characterized by atoms and molecules, um, you know, dust, water, all, all of the elements that are, that we have. And, um, and you know, God specifically says that, that Adam was made from dust. And um, this is like the, the, the characteristic. So Jesus became a member of the old creation by birth. So he was 100% human he 
had body like ours. He died, which severed his connection with the old. So by dying, the his his spirit left his body and he was no longer part of the old creation. He was raised as the very first instance of the new creation. So Jesus' resurrection body was the first actual manifestation of what something in the new creation actually looked like. Because there was nothing before that. There wasn't like any plants or animals or anything. Now we have Jesus. He's the very first instance of new creation. And um, so so uh, he is raised. And then we are joined to him. If we're saved and born again, we're joined to him first in our spirits and finally with new bodies like him. So it's, it's being joined to Jesus gets us into the new creation. So what that means is his death, somehow we are connected with him in his death back in the garden. And when he was raised from the dead, we participate in that resurrection. So the Bible kind of looks at one resurrection there. Um, later on, our bodies will be resurrected, but like one resurrection of new life happening then. And this union happens when we trust him and some of his life gets put into us. And I'll talk about that a little more next week. Um, so baptism is a picture of this death and resurrection. And so being baptized, going down into water is like going down into the grave and coming out is like being raised from the dead. And so I'm going to read now some of Romans 6 that really explains this very clearly, but I wanted to go through it beforehand so that we get the best from this passage. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So that's what the symbolism was. It was about him dying. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So, the idea then is in some way that we don't really understand is we become like attached to Jesus, like irrevocably connected to him so that him going down into the, into the grave, a part of us dies and him being raised, a part of us has new life. So Paul goes on to explain a bit more. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin may might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Now that's tr- translated old self. It actually, you look at the original, you could translate it as, as our Adam was crucified with him. The bit of us you know, that we unfortunately get from Adam, that was crucified with him. It's like a very, very clear reference to our old creation-ness. Um, and uh, then he says, um, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, you may say, well, but I'm not free from sin. I sometimes fall into sin. I often do. I do all the time. What's going on? Well, I'm going to explain that in a minute. 
Now, if we had, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. So, um, this again, looking forward to, um, future, to the resurrection, but also living with him now and uh, experiencing that life now. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So here is the, the real core of what he's saying. <clears throat> he's saying that, that there's a part of you, which is the part that we get from the old creation. It's part of our spirits that we get that kind of, that, that, the part that's going to fail Eden. That part is gone. Well, not quite gone. We'll come to that in a minute. But the part is like, it says it's dead. And we have the life of Jesus within us that enables us to live a new life. And then we end up, he ends up by saying, um, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies, mortal body, to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as parts of us to sin as instruments for unrighteousness but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law, but under grace. Okay, so it's not the easiest passage to follow, but I'm going to give you an analogy which hopefully will help. Um, imagine a new drug was developed which could cure anyone who's suffering from COVID, who's actually suffering from it, no matter how bad they were, and it would 100% cure them. Not straight away. It might take a few weeks, but it would be absolutely guaranteed to cure them from COVID. And imagine you're really sick and you are given this drug. And so you're in a state now where you know you're going to have victory over this. Your body is going to have victory. There's absolutely no doubt about that. But the victory isn't complete yet. The victory, like you're, this battle's still being fought. The, the, the enemy is defeated. It's defeated enemy. It's, you know, it's not going to survive, but nevertheless, it's got a bit of kick left in it. And so some days, you know, really, you're not really feeling good at all. I want you to imagine a little bit more. Imagine that this drug actually works better and faster if you don't mope around, you know, saying you're sick and so on. Well, you actually fight the sickness and you say, you know, I'm going to exercise, going to eat well. I'm just going to. I'm just going to live like I've got lots of lots of life. And imagine the drug works better if you do that. Um, and so a lot of it's to do with your mindset, because if you've got a positive mindset about um, you don't have to you don't have to behave like you're sick, because although there is some sickness there, it's, it is going. This is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that that there are vestiges of the old in you. And not just vestiges, there's lots of the old in you, but it's a defeated enemy that its time is, is, is up. It's time is short. 
um, by the time you die or Jesus returns, you know, it's all going to be over and that will be gone. But in the meantime, you have uh, this power in you that wants to have victory, but you have, you are now empowered with something stronger. So you have a choice. You are not doomed just to, to fail all the time. You're not doomed to give into temptation. So if a temptation comes, you actually have a little box that you can open up and it says in this box, um, on this box, new life of Christ. And you can open it up and in that is all the power that you can send out against this and you can have victory. And he says, um, you need to understand this. And so verse 12, uh, is interesting because it, it really suggests that some people do allow sin to continue, even though they're saved. It says, do not, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. So it's a risk that you might, if you don't understand that you don't have to. So let it not to, to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. So live your reality, live what you can do and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Um, for sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law, but under grace. So I'm going to tell you the story of, um, of Larry's goldfish, which you may have heard before. So when I was dating Anne, she was living at, she was, uh, um, living in a, a the house of a, of a guy called Larry, a couple in the church. And, um, this couple, um, renting room to her. And, um, Larry g- decided to get a goldfish and he had a little glass goldfish bowl and he had it up on the mantelpiece and the goldfish was swimming round and round and round. And in the end, Larry got sorry for this goldfish because it was just swimming round and round and round. And he decided he needed something better for it. And in fact, he was not just going to make something better he was going to make it a palace an emporium he was going to build an outside amazing outside um pond with you know fountain and and lilies and the whole works and he did it and uh he because he was in construction he knew what to do he made this beautiful beautiful pond and he filled it with water and he allowed everything to to settle in and the time came when the goldfish was going to be taken from inside and it was going to be gently put into this pond and we all came and we watched and this happened and so this was great anyway next time he went out to see how the goldfish was enjoying this new life guess what it had found a little patch between the plants that was about the same size as its goldfish bowl and it was going round and round and round inside that area now isn't that sad now, I think probably eventually it discovered the rest of the pond, but that's kind of the image that we have here as somebody who you don't have to live like that. You don't have to sin. You don't have to follow the old ways. You have the power of Jesus Christ alive in you and you need to access that power because it is new creation life. So if we want to put this in creation terms, you don't have to live as if you're a member of the old creation. You can live as someone who's a member of the new creation. Um, he says, sin will no, no, will have no dominion over you. Sin might pretend 
that it's in control, but actually you can call it bluff and you can live in a new way. Well, I'm going to unpack that a lot more next week because there was so much in there. But um, uh, so uh, I'm going to this is the, the last slide that I have now, which is from Galatians chapter two. And this gives us a little bit of explanation about what this new life is like. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, in other words, I'm living it in my old creation body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so this is a, a just a beautiful way of putting it. Um, that second line there, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And this is touching on what, what I'm going to expand on more next time. But um, it's actually something that's, that's, that's living in us, that's actually Jesus, that we have to connect with in order to live this life. Uh, I think probably the key takeaway from today is the amazing hope, what God has done by just not rerunning Eden in such a beautiful way. And you know, I just love that story of Aaron and the way he was made the one. He'd sinned so horribly, but he was the one that actually came and was able to stand in God's presence. I just love that. And the way God has done this with us and given us this like rerun of Eden where we like are perfect and pure and we have all of this you know, all of these things that Jesus has done for us. And so I want to give you that joy and that hope. And also the other takeaway is that I want you to realize that you, that you don't have to behave in things, do things that aren't good. You don't have to behave in bad ways. You have a power within you that's able to live in a new way, that's able to live in a way that just shows Jesus Christ to this world. And that is available to you if you are in Christ. So let's pray, shall we? Thank you, Father, for this extraordinary love you've shown us and this hope that you've given us, particularly through what you've done in Jesus and you've made available for us now in Jesus. Lord, we pray that each one of us will know how to experience your power in our lives, and to feel your joy through doing this. Please give us victory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.